of the chapter that we read from Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We'll sing in response to the proclamation of God's word from Psalm 133. Love, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, that includes you, of course, boys and girls. What a great privilege to be all together in the auditorium this morning, isn't it? After two years, we can finally be together. We've been longing for this. And so we're thankful that we're here. And we hope and pray that it stays that way for a long time. We have experienced painful things in the past two years. Sometimes having to worship at home, sometimes having to worship in separate locations, not being able to come together regularly for Bible study and for social events. But we haven't just been separated physically, have we? Sadly enough, we have also experienced emotional and spiritual separation. To one degree or another, we have all experienced that our opinions, political opinions, if you want to call it that, over the last two years have led to estrangement from friends, family members, and from brothers and sisters in the church. And so I think it's a good time to reflect on why it is so good that we can be together today, not just physically in one room, but why is it so good that we are spiritually united as saints in the Church of Christ? And, and what does that mean? And how do we express that? in our walk and our talk. Well, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has much to say about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here Paul likens the body of Christ to the physical body and shows us that every single gift, every single saint is vitally important to the function and the well-being of the entire body. And his summary statement comes in verse 27, which is also the theme of the sermon. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And we will discuss what it means to become members and what it means to be members. Becoming members and being members. So Paul in this chapter gives us one of the most well-known illustrations in Scripture. The illustration of the church as being a body he uses that word about 17 times. In verse 12, he writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And he uses this illustration to teach us about the nature and the function of the church and church membership. The one body of Christ is the church that is made up of persons who expect their salvation in Christ and who trust Him with their whole heart. And amongst His believers, there are people with all kinds of backgrounds and abilities, people with different strengths and weaknesses, various levels of likability and friendliness and compassion. And yet, in Christ our head, we have a unity. In Christ, the many members function together, are meant to function together. And that is because it is God who brings us together. 
How do we know this? Well, Paul writes in verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, all baptized into one body, that is, the body of Christ. So our membership in Christ's body begins when we are saved, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into the church by making us, by faith, one with Christ in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, his glorification. And notice that at the end of verse 12, Paul uses the words, so it is with Christ. Now, we might have thought that Paul would have said, so it is with the church, because that's what he's referencing, but he writes, so it is with Christ. Why? To impress upon us that it is impossible to speak of the church apart from Christ, her head. The Bible makes it clear there is one Christ and one church. There is one head and one body. Christ, the bridegroom, has but one bride. And he who is the head of the body is the essential expression of our unity as members of his body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's one of Paul's favorite phrases, to be in Christ. When you are brought to faith in Christ, you are not only brought to Christ, but Christ is in you. By faith you are incorporated into Jesus Christ. You become members of his body. So it's impossible to experience rebirth, being reborn again, and at the same time not to be made part of the body of Christ. And verse 13 tells us that we all share unity with one another because we all share unity with Christ. We're baptized into one, in one spirit, the spirit of Christ, into one body, the body of Christ. And that's irrespective of race, color, background, whether you're Jew or Greek, writes Paul, slave or free. And the kinds of things that separate us in society may not separate us in the church. There is an intrinsic and fundamental unity that exists when we become part of Christ. We all share in his baptism and in the Holy Spirit. So it's impossible to be a Christian without being baptized in the Spirit. And there is only one baptism of the Spirit, for it is by his power that we are placed in a new relationship with God. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are made to be in Christ and made to be members of Christ, and individually members of the body of Christ. And the result, the result is significant. The result is the forgiveness of our sins. Our sin debt is canceled. Our record is cleared. We are made members of Christ. We're baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are members of one another. And we are seated in the heavenly places even. Because the kingdom of heaven is now our home, not the kingdom of darkness, because we're children of the light. So that's what it means to be in the body of Christ. That's what it means that we all are bade to drink of the one spirit. This is the basis of our unity. We have been united with all who have been baptized in the spirit of Christ. So no matter what your heritage or your background, no matter what your IQ is or your political opinions are, 
When we are baptized in the Spirit of Christ, we have been brought by faith into the body of Christ. And as members of the church, God has called us to him. It is God who makes this arrangement, congregation. Just as God has arranged the parts of the human body to be one body, to work together, so God has arranged the parts of the body of Christ. Verse 24 God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. And God has done that with our physical bodies, but he does that with the church as well. All the parts of your body are where they are because that's where God puts them. He forms your inward parts. He knits you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, you can say with the psalmist, Wonderful are your works, O Lord. We are individually God's creative handiwork. Your body was not stuck together. There was no plan made by some committee to put it together this way. But God determined that it would be this way. In his wisdom, this is how he determines to put our bodies together. And the marvel of the human body is there for all to consider. We are also all unique individuals, wonderful creations of God's divine ingenuity. Well, so it is with the church. The part which each member plays exists because of divine intervention and divine invention. It's not some bright idea of some committee or even the elders. Writing to Christians in the first century, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, But now you have received mercy. Peter is writing about the radical change that happens in the lives of those who are God's children. God has placed these believers in his family. And we come into the family as individuals. But we do not live in solitude. Yes, your faith is yours. And you are individual believers, but you do not live as individuals. And that's why it's so important to keep in mind that church membership does not exist apart from the knowledge of Christ, and that he is both Lord and Savior. Your name on the membership of the church doesn't mean a thing if you do not acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And your name on the membership means nothing if you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit and brought into the body of Christ. And how do we know this? Because Paul says, God has composed the body. It's his doing. And that word composed is a word that means something like mingled or mixed together. The body of Christ isn't a sculpture made out of a single piece of stone or wood or other kind of material, but it is a family. It's a mingling together of many different individuals all forming a cohesive whole. And that, then, is God's purpose for us when we are baptized in one spirit 
into the body of Christ. It is God who brings us into the body of Christ. But that means that he also wants each member to function at maximum effectiveness. And this will not happen unless the members of the body are willing to submit to God's tune and be led as he conducts us. If we decide to order our own destiny and do our own thing and come up with our own strategy, the church body turns into chaos. And so the part that God gives us to play, it matters. And no part is irrelevant or insignificant. That's what it means to be members of Christ's body. And we have to keep in mind here that what Paul is writing to the church here in chapter 12, he's writing to a specific group of people. He says, you are the body of Christ. In chapter, in chapter 1, he addresses them as the church, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The point is, Paul is addressing a congregation. And in doing so, he says to that particular body, you are the body of Christ. Well, congregation, in the same way, we are being addressed. You, brothers and sisters, the church, of God that is in Elora, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the body of Christ. And in that context, he says, and individually members of it. So we need to listen to that very carefully. Because that means that it is impossible that God gives you a place in the body that is irrelevant It is impossible that God gives you a place in the body that is irrelevant or insignificant or dispensable. All over the world today, men and women and boys and girls are looking for significance in some way or another, searching for relevance. But of all places in the world, it should be obvious to us that real significance is to be found only in the body of Christ. When we gather here, we are significant because this is where God calls us. This is where he puts us. This is where he brings us together. Not in the first place together in this building, as wonderful as that is, but because we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so your place here then, each of you individually, your place is not insignificant. And your function in the body is not insignificant. And there are several practical applications that come from this truth. First of all, we are not to be isolationists. We may not isolate ourselves from the body of Christ. There's the obvious kind of isolation that happens when we remove ourselves from the church, when we tell ourselves and we tell others that we don't have to come together, we don't need you, we don't need the church, we could serve God on our own, we're fine by ourselves. Well, it should be clear from the first part of this sermon why such an attitude is disobedience to Christ. 
then there's the other kind of isolation, the isolation that can happen in your heart and your mind. And that can happen even while you're sitting in the pew listening to a sermon. You might be able to keep that hidden, but eventually that kind of isolation also becomes apparent. And there's all kinds of reasons for why someone might feel isolated. And Paul addresses that in this chapter. If you read from verse 14 on, you understand that there must have been some members in the church in Corinth who were feeling very discouraged. They were feeling inferior, as if they weren't needed. I'm just a lowly foot. So obviously I'm not needed. I'm just an ear, so I can't see, so I'm not really that important. Well, to summarize what Paul is saying is if you feel this way, then there's something wrong, either with you or with the church or both. But there's nothing wrong with God's purpose for you in the body. But sometimes we think this way, right? I don't think anybody needs me. If I didn't show up, nobody would notice anyway. Clearly, some in Corinth were feeling that way. Unhappy with the gifts they had received. Unsatisfied with their position in the church, perhaps. And so they were envious of others and what others had been given. They perhaps wanted to share in the different kind of gifts that they hadn't received, the kinds that Paul lists in the first part of the chapter. While this expression of inferiority, it might sometimes come across as pious, as piety, but it can be an expression of pride. It might sound really pious to say, oh, my gifts aren't very significant. I don't really have much to offer to the body of Christ. But think about what you're saying if you think that way. Are you saying that the gifts that God gives you are not very significant? Are you saying that God has not given you much to offer to the body of Christ, even though he has placed you there? If you say that you are a foot and not a hand or just an ear instead of an eye, it, it sounds somewhat humble, but not for very long. It can be an indication of being overly self-focused. It calls into question God's goodness, his generosity, his kindness, and his power in your life. After all, where did these gifts come from? If God made you a foot, is that not his will for you? So if I say that my gifts are irrelevant or insignificant, it's actually an expression of pride, like the clay saying to the potter, why did you make me like this? And so if your envy of the position and gifts of others keeps you from getting involved in the communion of saints, then you need to ask yourself if you are perhaps acting out of pride and self-centeredness. Instead, in all humility, we ought to each be thankful for the gifts that God has given to each of us. Because that is part of his grace toward us. And it's when you truly understand God's grace that you will also understand or discover your own gifts. It's when we do not understand the magnificence of God's grace. Right? Then, we're, then we're tempted to spend all kinds of time wondering on what is God's divine purpose for me. And then we start thinking selfish thoughts. 
I don't like the part that I've been called to play. I don't like the gift that I've been given, but I like what she has. And I like what they have. But in light of Psalm 139, we should be able to get on our knees and say, thank you, God, for making me who I am. Thank you for making me, me. Thank you, God, for putting me here. Thank you for making me part of this body of Christ. It's only when we humbly accept where God has put us in the body that we can also become useful to the body of Christ. And the foot might say, I'm not a hand, so I'm not part of the body. But if you think of that, that's obviously really silly, isn't it? Of course it's silly. You know it's silly. I know it's silly. Paul knew it was silly. But that's still often how we think. My part is not important just because I'm a foot and not a hand. But the fact of the matter is you are still a foot. And if you don't think that a foot is part of the body, all you have to do is look down for a couple of seconds. Another thing is that we're often, not, we're often tempted to believe that diversity is not a blessing. We're often tempted to believe that uniformity is a blessing. That unity requires uniformity. All right, if only those people were more like us, things would be better in the church. If only that family lived more like we did, things in the church would be much better and we could get along better. We're often uncomfortable with those who are different than we are. But Paul kiboshes that idea very strongly. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? Or if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And again, if you think about that, that's utterly ridiculous thought, isn't it? Just try picture that for a moment, that the person sitting beside you is just an eye. I can hear the kids giggling already. But obviously, congregation, the Holy Spirit considered it necessary to give us a ridiculously obvious illustration Otherwise, we wouldn't get it. So that's the first practical application. We are not to be isolationists, and we must not have a false sense of inferiority. But then the other side of the coin is that we must not have a sense of superiority either. Some in Corinth said, well, the church doesn't need me, but others said, we don't need you. And note how Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And clearly in Corinth, this is something that must have been happening. And that is basically where the problems come from in the body of Christ. But the Holy Spirit tells us we may never believe or act as if we do not need the other members. You see, congregation, the distinctions between members of the body are distinctions of function and not distinctions of value. The strategy of the evil one is that he wants us to make distinctions of value. Satan would love it if we all had inflated egos because that would destroy the communion of saints. But God's purpose for the body of Christ is that we all humble ourselves and that we look after one another so that there would be no division in the body. That if one member suffers, we all suffer together. That if one member rejoices, we all rejoice together. And Paul is making the point here of saying that the parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. That means 
you can't do without them. You could live without a leg or an arm, perhaps even without your eyesight or your hearing. The parts that you don't see, though, like your lungs and your liver and your spleen, you can't do without them, can you? Parts that you you hardly ever think about because you never see them and they all seem to function just fine, but you can't live without them. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that those in the church who are less noticeable, some perhaps who are unappreciated and vulnerable to misunderstanding and neglect, that they are indispensable. And that could also be a reason why some feel inferior. Because they are vulnerable. They need to be protected. So it's the task of others to protect those who are weaker, to watch out for those who have less honor, because they too are indispensable. Just as your bodily external shell protects those organs, those indispensable organs, so the church is to protect those who seem to be weaker. So what Paul is saying is that we generally attach greater significance to those parts that are visible and that we can see and that parts that stand out, like, like the one who preaches or the one who leads, the one who gets a lot of stuff done in the church. But ministers come and go, don't they? And elders and deacons get replaced on a yearly basis. But there are other parts of the body that are unnoticed and unseen. People who are working behind the scenes and hold the body together and we might not even know who they are. Those who are faithful prayer warriors. Members who pray constantly for the church in their homes. For the well-being of the congregation. And then there are members that we don't see because they have stopped coming to church or hardly ever show up for worship. And they frequently absent themselves from church functions. Some people live on the fringes of the congregation. But these two are indispensable. Why? Because for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ, the Lord ensures that the body has those kinds of members too. Why does the Lord do that? Well, he does that to teach us. He does that to keep us humble. He does that so that we have an opportunity to show Christ's love. He does that to test us. How will we treat those people? And Paul writes that when one member suffers, we all suffer together. It's pretty easy to understand what Paul means when we sympathize with someone who is dying or who has a serious illness. But what about members who have different kinds of struggles? What about the parents who have a very hard time dealing with a child who is difficult? Do you struggle with them? Does your heart bleed when someone is excommunicated? Does your heart ache when you hear that a sister has withdrawn herself from the church? And do you reach out when you are able? Do you make sacrifices to reach out to others? And perhaps now is also a good time to reflect on how we have interacted with one another over the last two years. How have we interacted with those who have different political views than what we do? 
Have we perhaps elevated our personal opinions to such a degree that it has driven a wedge between ourselves and others, between ourselves and the body of Christ? Perhaps it's time to reflect carefully on these things, brothers and sisters, because in many ways we have allowed diversity of opinion to create disunity. And maybe we need to ask, what part have I played in this? Maybe we've done things and said things that should have been un, not said or not done. Things for which we need to ask forgiveness. Things that will take time to heal. Two years ago, the church is called a day of prayer. The first and the foremost purpose of a day of prayer is that it would bring us to self-reflection and humility before God and one another. Why is it that God brings this, this kind of calamity on the world? Not just on the world, but on us, on his people. Why does God do that? It is for the purpose of bringing us to humility and worship. So that we would turn to God, that we would acknowledge our sin and our sinfulness. That we would worship him for the salvation that he grants to us in Jesus Christ. And that we would thank him for making us members of the body of Christ. And if we have come to that point, then we will also rejoice in being part of the body. And we will gladly care for one another and love one another. The Lord wants us to care for one another, congregation. Not that we would just reach out and help people that we like, people who are easy to like and easy to help, but that we would reach out and help and love each member regardless of who they are. And that we would make a special effort to help those who are least likable. And that's why there's no room in the church for a sense of isolationism, inferiority, or superiority in the hearts of God's people. Congregation, this chapter teaches us that God turns our universe upside down, doesn't it? Because Christ loves us, we are called to make him, and not ourselves, the center of our life. We're called to love the Lord above all. And because Christ loves us, we are to love others. We are to love those for whom Christ died. And having life in Christ means life together with all those who believe. It means that we take a loving, genuine interest in the lives of others. A loving, genuine interest in the lives of our fellow believers. If we are part of the body of Christ, then we desire the preservation and the health of the whole body, do we not? We expect one day to be on the new heavens and the new earth together, do we not? And is that not why we should be working together? And that's why at the, right, at the end of the chapter, God points us to an even better gift, the Spirit's gift of love. For what's the sense of all those spiritual gifts in the church if they are not used in love? Why bother with all those blessings if they're not used for the good of others? If we do not sacrifice our talents for others, for the good of God's kingdom, Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians, submit to one another out of love for Christ. 
Think of your membership in the church like being in an orchestra. Individual members of the orchestra don't play to be heard. They don't play to overpower the rest of the orchestra, but they play the music they've been given by the conductor. And if the, in the church we play according to the music that God has given us and we submit to Jesus Christ, who is the conductor of the orchestra, then we will make music that is pleasing to the Lord. And yes, we're not perfect instruments. We're all out of tune. But remember, you are instruments in the hands of your master. And he conscripts you to play in the band. And when we follow his direction, then we make a harmonious melody. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And the Lord has given you a place in his body, in this body of Christ. You have been knit together by God's perfect wisdom and he intends us to be together. And he's done it for a reason, his divine perfect reason. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made as a body of Christ, here at this place. Well then, let's live together in unity, sharing in suffering and in joy to the glory of Christ, for the coming of his kingdom. Amen.